Good evening, everyone, and a uh, very warm welcome. Boa noite a todo mundo. Sejam bem-vindos. Thank you very much uh, for coming to tonight's event, which is a Department of Geography and Environment uh, public lecture. Uh, my name is Eric Neumann. I'm the head of the department. <coughs> and uh, I will be chairing uh, the event. Uh, you will see the structure is slightly different from a normal event. We'll have to stop a little bit uh, earlier because we expect quite a big um, queue of people wishing to get the book signed. Uh, you will be able to buy Mike's uh, book outside, and he will be here, inside here, to, to sign the book. And we will stop uh, 10 to 8 for that. It's also because Mike told me that uh, his brother-in-law has a birthday today, so he needs to be out in, in time. <laughs> now, tonight's speaker, uh, Michael Payton, doesn't need much uh, of an introduction. I think he's best known to most of you as part of the Monty Python group and uh, with you know, the, the, the films like The Life of Brian, The Meaning of, of Life, uh, and other films as well, like uh, my personal uh, best, uh, A Fish Called uh, Wonder. Um, but he's, uh, beside being a, a comedian and an actor, he's also been an author and particularly a, a travel um, writer. His list of honors and awards are too long to list here. I'll just uh, mention that he was between 2009 and 2012, the president of the Royal Geographical Society, which you know, in the Department of Geography and Environment is particularly uh, great to have. Uh, that's also a good excuse to mention that the current president of the RGS, Judith, yes, Dame Judith Rees is uh, also here, and she is, of course, one of our own. So... It's a good uh, occasion. Now, tonight, uh, Michael will talk about uh, his latest travel book um, on Brazil, which, you, um, which is, uh, was co-produced, I think, simultaneously with a four-part uh, BBC uh, series. It's a particular pleasure for me personally to chair this event. Um, you know, being married now for close to 15 years to someone who is not only from Brazil, but very Brazilian, actually. And, um, you know, uh, like, like Michael, I think I have uh, come a bit under, under the spell of this beautiful country uh, and uh, people who are most welcoming and uh, really kind and who, you know, despite the horrendous violence and the, the really uh, stark inequalities, um, really have a very good sense, embrace life and have a very good sense of, of spending um, a good time. So let's see whether, uh, Michael, you can cast some of this uh, spell onto our visitors tonight. Michael, over to you. It's very, very nice indeed to be here and see so many of you here. Um, it was in April last year that we returned from the last of four journeys to Brazil, uh, month-long journeys uh, to record our series, Brazil with Michael Palin, uh, which was shown, I think, about October, so probably about a year ago. And uh, as with all the series that I've done, uh, I did produce a book, this very, very handsome book, now reduced in price in paperback form, very, very, <laughs> a must in every home. Um, uh, the, the book has always been part of the, uh, the deal ever since Around the World in 80 Days, 
um, when the BBC asked me to write a book. And uh, what I've enjoyed about the book is that actually, instead of being merely the transcript of, a, of the commentary that we write, it is something quite different because the book contains the sort of things that I've observed on the journey. Um, which the camera is not always able to pick up, things that happen in the evening when the camera's put away. So it is very much my own diary um, of, of the journeys. I, I, I particularly like little things I pick up, like signs and all that. I remember in the Philippines seeing a wonderful building called the Immaculate Conception Funeral Parlour. Um, and another thing was... Uh, Indian road safety campaign, this is totally off the point, don't you? Uh, up in Ladakh, a lot of little signs to try and um, encourage road safety um, in the mad truck drivers of North India. And had little signs. First one said, after whiskey, driving risky. Um, <laughs> drive like hell, you'll be there. Uh, and better be Mr. Late than the late Mr. Uh, this one was completely smashed because the truck had gone right across it. So there we are. It obviously wasn't working. Perfectly, but I thought it was a rather sweet campaign. Anyway, enough of that. So um, I say the, the book uh, and the Brazil and the and the series complement each other. And what I'd like to do tonight, really, is to, um, with the help of photographs taken by um, our resident photographer, we have a which is a luxury item on a travel series. But a lovely man called Basil Powell. Um, he's um, he's Chinese and a great photographer. So I'm going to be using some of his um, slides, like this one. Uh, oh, no, we're just going to test it. There we are, yes, um, to, to start with and take you on a journey really through, um, through the country in pictures. So maybe we can fade, begin to fade the lights a little bit now so that you can, um, you can see the pictures. There we are, there they're going. Ooh, lol, you're in there. You want to see the pictures as clearly as possible. How do you do Brazil? World's fifth largest country, sixth largest economy. How do you divide it into a journey? Normally what I like to do is go from one end to the other, like we did with the Himalayas, like we did across the Sahara. But in Brazil it was just um, much more difficult uh, because most people in Brazil live uh, on the coastal belt. I think it's about sort of like um, 80 or 90% of Brazilians uh, live within 250 miles of the sea, but the rest of Brazil is absolutely enormous. So rather than just trek across the mountains, uh, where there are no there are no roads, there are there are rivers, but there you know, a lot of them are not. Uh, it's difficult to navigate. We decided to take four separate geographical, geopolitical uh, areas of Brazil and concentrate on it that way. So first of all um, was the northeast. Um, the second, actually, what we can do is we can have a little map here. Oh, that's Brazil. Just to show, show we've got the right sort of takes. It said Japan. I would have to be very embarrassed. Here we are. And um, so, yeah, there, there we are. We can see, is my little clicker working? I think it is. Or is it? Huh? It uh, is. It is somewhere. It's probably going up. Anyway, you can see there's the northeast down there. That was number one. Then we did Amazonia. Then the main industrial area, which is São Paulo uh, and, uh, and Rio, down in the south here, where the mines first created the wealth that made Brazil. And then finally, um, the deep south, which is actually very much the most European, uh, Europeanized Brazil. So we start in the northeast. Uh, north by northeast was the name of the first uh, episode. The, um, the thing, first of all, um, we right up in the north in a place called San Luis we came across a rather extraordinary geographical feature 
called the Linsuis Malignensis, and this is a, um, a desert with um, rainfall. So the, um, the, for a huge area of the northeast coast, just south of San Luis, uh, is desertified. So a lot of sand, but it also rains in the middle of the year. So you get a desert as as stark and as bleak as the Sahara, and yet with these wonderful lakes that appear for half the year. And you can see them there. I can't see where this is actually working or not. Um, I'll walk across again. Um, and here are the lakes, the fingers of water, and they are, I mean, they're enormous. The dunes are between them. And this is the size of the people here, tiny little figures. And they go out, obviously, um, it's a great place for tourists. And uh, I remember one thing I, I realised about the Brazilians very early on is um, uh, how little clothing they wear. Um, so we went out to the Lensois, and there they were. Just uh, everyone seemed to be in tiny sort of well. I mean, you know, thongs yes. rather <laughs> un- overestimated. It was all like a thong would be an overcoat in Brazil. Um, <laughs> And I, just everybody, um, young, old, boys, girls, everyone was dressed to get maximum amount of sun on their bodies. But this, was, this is a, a, an extraordinary and, and quite a unique feature, I think, the, um, the desert uh, lakes of the Lensois Mariniensis. Um, now, the, um, uh, this is uh, uh, rather more to the point. This is a wonderful man called Apollonio Melonio. Uh, he's 93 and he lives in San Luis and uh, he organised about 40 years ago his local community, which is a very poor community, he organised them to uh, pre- present their version of a popular uh, story in a, a carnival uh, carnival stroke festival event called um, Bum Boy Jump My Bull and it's uh, basically the story was that a slave um, needed the tongue of um, a cow or a bull uh, to uh, help his pregnant wife who was ill. Um, he killed, killed the bull, took the tongue. The wife was, was fine, but they discovered him and he was about to be dragged off when the hand of God came down and brought the bull back to life and everyone was happy and she had quintuplets or whatever. I don't know. She was, uh, and... Uh, uh, he was, um, he was saved from being um, uh, imprisoned or, or, or worse, executed by the, land, by the landlord. So they, every year they, um, they try and recreate this in this little barrio up in San Luis. San Luis is one of the poorest parts of, uh, of Brazil. And here they are with their... Um, oops. There we go. Um, need the battery changing this. This is the... Um, they're preparing in his, in his home for their um, appearance in the festival. They are very keen here on doing it in the traditional way. You'll see the sort of um, emu headdresses, um, the, the way they're painted. Everything's made up in the, um, in the area. And a lot of the places now in San Luis, a lot of the festival uh, areas in, uh, in Brazil now tend to base their events on television programs they've seen or something like that. But here, um, Apollonio Melonio um, and his friends get together a traditional gathering, so there you can see. Whilst I was there, um, I went to investigate something which is more seminal to the real history of the area. Um, the northeast is basically African Brazil, because this was settled 
um, largely by enormous, well, not settled, populated uh, by enormous numbers of Africans who were brought to Brazil against their will uh, as slaves to work the plantations. The Portuguese first set foot in Brazil in 1500, came back in about, that was by mistake, they came back in about 1505 and found that it was very, very rich. Cotton would grow, sugar would grow, coffee would grow, all sorts of things. So they set up plantations. They needed enormous numbers of people to run these plantations, hence the, um, the importation of vast numbers of slaves from uh, Nigeria and from um, other parts of West Africa. Uh, more slaves came to Brazil than any other part of the Americas, much more than in the United States. So it's very much um, an African uh, tradition, uh, African traditions here in the Northeast. And I have to say that the, the Portuguese and the slaves, because there were so few Portuguese and so many slaves, there was not a kind of separation. They intermarried, um, and there's a, a sort of more relaxed attitude uh, to race in Brazil um, without the problems that they had in the United States of segregation and integration uh, right up to the 1950s and 60s. Um, anyway, I went on the local ferry uh, to a place called Alcantara, which is a, a, an island just off San Luis where the rich landowners used to live and built their palaces. Um, and it was very Brazilian. They said, oh, the ferry leaves at 9 o'clock, but actually uh, that one's gone, so there's another one will go at 10 o'clock, but um, because the tide's gone out, we'll have to go to this sandbank and get on, the, get on the ferry there. And this is actually the ferry. <laughs> we just all clambered on board. And um, the captain uh, sort of gathered together all the life jackets that were gathered in the relationship. I thought, well, that's good. At least we're going to have life jackets. He just put them under the seat so he could get five more people onto the boat. <laughs> Um, Alcantara, again, very much the Portuguese style, um, simple, clean uh, style of uh, low, single-story buildings. This is called um, uh, Crocodile uh, Road because, um, because the, uh, the colourings, the markings on the road, the stripes of grey and white are supposed to resemble that on the back of the crocodiles. Um, now, of course, this place that was once very, very rich um, is just uh, a place where anybody can live. The, the, the people there are not particularly um, rich or successful. They're just um, the people who, who live on the island and make money, I suppose, from the, from the sugar they grow there. Back we went to uh, uh, San Luis, and this is uh, the people um, from um, the barrio taking part in the streets in their event. Terrific dancing, they've made all this stuff themselves, great colour, and there they are in the main street in San Luis. They all get about uh, 25 minutes, I think, um, on the stage with all the other parts of, of the town, and this was, um, this was their, their moment uh, for Floresta. They're, they were called from Floresta. And um, there they are, as I say, using the masks they'd made, doing it very traditionally, having a great time, and these great, these great festivals uh, really mark um, the Brazilian sort of way of life. They love celebrating, they love to be out on the streets, um, which probably make the World Cup very successful, even if the stadiums aren't built. But they will be, they will be, as you will see later. <laughs> Further down the coast, this is um, in the foreground a uh, town called Olinda, and in the background, Recife, or Recife, as you would say, if you pronounce it in Portuguese Brazilian. Olinda, uh, one of the old, uh, one of the first settlements on the, on the northeast coast. And this is interesting, because this was settled originally by the Dutch. And in fact, the idea that the Portuguese had it all their own way in Brazil 
um, is quite um, untrue. In fact, there were Dutch and also um, the French in, in Rio who were uh, working very hard to take over the, that coast and set up settlements there, just as hard as the Portuguese. Um, the word, word is that in uh, Olinda, the, the Dutch weren't particularly liked because their sort of Calvinist ways were rather um, didn't quite conform to the the general Brazilian spirit of life and they thought the Dutch a little bit severe so um, they got rid of them and the Portuguese did take over in the end all this coast um, a Cife in the background uh, a big uh, modern trading city it's the port nearest to Europe and of course it's, it's not that far, it's only about 2,000 miles from Brazil to, uh, to West Africa as well so they're, they're, they're not that far away so this was um, on the bit that juts out one of the most important trading, trading cities. This is a rather dark chapter in the life of, um, of modern Brazil. In the 1970s and um, 1980s, there was a dictatorship, a military dictatorship there, the Junta, rather similar to what existed in Argentina and lots of other South American countries, Chile as well. It wasn't nearly as bad in Brazil, in fact. Um, the very few people uh, who, who disappeared, but there was torture, people did disappear, and this is a monument, uh, a statue monument commemorating those people, and it looks like this because that is one of the torture positions, it's called the parrot perch, where people are suspended um, from, um, from the ceiling, and their legs and arms chained together. So that's a rather, say, a reminder that only quite recently Brazil went through, went through very, very dark times indeed. Um, further back, in about 1900, Brazil was a mecca for railway builders. The British and the French particularly went out there. And this is, you can see the, the flair here of the French designers of the station Recife. And uh, this is no longer a working station, sadly. It's a railway museum. They've got a few trucks in there. Because trains just don't exist. Railways don't exist in Brazil anymore. Um, except in, uh, for goods, one or two um, of, of the ports are served by iron ore trains and all that. But in terms of passenger transport, uh, railways missed out because in the 1920s along came Henry Ford and he said, no, the way ahead is motor cars and roads. And motor cars and roads were built and we'll see later how Henry Ford became, became a bit of a cropper too. But um, Sadly, you've got the beautiful station but no working railway here. This is um, an out, out into, um, into the interior at a small um, town called Serrita, and it's the headquarters of the, or, or rather the, the, the main town, for the cowboys of the region. And here you see the Redentor, the, the statue that uh, looms above Rio, reproduced in many Brazilian towns and cities. And here it is over this very small, ordinary, quite poor town. The vaqueros, the cowboys who live around here, are of the old sort. They... Um, they use horseback, they don't use vehicles, and they go through this very, very sort of uh, thorny, difficult uh, scrubland to round up the cattle and all that. So uh, they wear, uh, here we go, here's one of the guys, you see him wearing these wonderful leather outfits, leather hat, leather jerkin, uh, leather straps on their, on their trousers. And as you can see from this guy, he's, he's been around a long time. Uh, these people... Uh, work till they drop, really, and uh, the old traditions of the vaqueros are beginning to disappear as motorized vehicles come in and all that. 
But in, in Sarita, they're very, very keen to try and keep the traditions going. So what they do is, every two months, they provide a sort of party, an event where the cowboys can come together, meet each other. Uh, cowboys have just been out on the land uh, alone, rounding up the cattle for the last two months, get together, and they dance and have a good time. So you don't, don't just get cowboys, you also get their relatives. Here we are, just to show another glimpse of modern Brazil. And um, part of the uh, event here is that they, they let loose four bulls. And the bulls um, uh, um, uh, go off into the bush and allow 15 minutes grace, and then the cowboys can go after them. And there are cash prizes for whoever brings um, the cows home first. So here we see them just setting off, off towards them um, after the bulls. And there were some very experienced uh, horsemen there, but the bulls were actually... Uh, the first bull was actually caught about 45 minutes later by some 16-year-olds. Uh, and uh, they're very, very pleased with themselves. And, and I thought, well, that's rather good. It just shows that maybe the old tradition of the vaqueros will perhaps continue. There are young people coming up. But um, it's very much dying out in Brazil, uh, except in, in parts of the interior like this. Um, now, back to the coast. And uh, the city that impressed me most of all was Salvador, this is the third biggest city in Brazil. It's 82% uh, people of African uh, descent. It's to someone coming from the cold North Europe, it's just wow, you know, liberating. There's a terrific noise everywhere, there's music everywhere, the smell of food everywhere, all these fantastic outfits and colourful. Uh, uh, dresses and things, these lovely women in the streets and all that. Just, it's, a great, it's a great feel to the place. And um, this is Basil's uh, roundup and a few, a few pictures of the street, street life in, um, in Salvador. Someone selling uh, beads, uh, hairstyle, like that. They'll try anything in the Brazilian. Absolutely. It's one of the most unselfconscious nations on earth. I really love that. You know, you can have a go at anything. These lovely ladies in Bahian costume, because Salvador de Bahia, Salvador on the bay, Bahian cuisine, Bahian uh, dress is, is very distinctive. And the rest of Brazil, I think, are rather jealous of Salvador. They're also they're incredibly lazy. You know, people in Sao Paulo say people in Rio are lazy. People in Rio say people in Salvador are lazy. And the people in Salvador admit they're lazy. And, um, <laughs> They have, they have a pretty good time, um, and the city seems to run very well, but it is, it is a great place to go to celebrate. And here's a typical tourist. I don't know what he's doing. <laughs> sort of peering in someone's window, uh, like some awful TV license inspector or something. Um, and there's the lady looking, you know, what's he on about? Um, kept seeing him regularly. Um, these are some of the magnificent churches that you'll see in, um, in Salvador. And this consistent sort of um, contrast between Africa and the sort of Spanish style of doing things. This is the, you know, a Catholic church. It was obviously Catholicism, very big in Brazil. They discovered gold near here and uh, this made Brazil in the, or certain people in Brazil, particularly the church in the um, 18th century, very rich indeed. So they covered these churches with um, gold leaf um, on the ceiling, on the walls, everywhere, as a sort of thanks to God for um, allowing them to discover this gold. So that's the sort of, sea, sort of place you'll see, terrific uh, abundance of gold. I've never seen anything like it anywhere else. Um, also, the, there are the... Um, 
the African customs, the African ways of life, which come, uh, have come over over the years. And this is a man who teaches capoeira. Capoeira is a sort of martial art based originally on a sort of sparring between the slaves and their masters, sort of self-defense dance. And now it's developed into a kind of, as I say, a, a rather gentle martial art. Well, it's not gentle, it's the, they move very fast, but you don't actually touch your opponent, you just do a sort of, get as close to, as po- close to him as possible. And this wonderful man here, Maestro Boagente, he's 66 years old, he's absolutely wonderful and teaches the children in a very poor favela in, um, in Salvador. Well, all favelas are fairly poor. Because uh, that's what they are, the slums. But um, he teaches them this discipline, and they all turn up in their little white outfits every day. He plays the berimbau, which is this um, musical instrument, very traditional musical instrument. And he has them all working away, and it gives them something to do, gets them off the streets, gives them something to get better at, and um, it, it seems to work very, very successfully. But he's very charismatic. He also had a radio. He has a radio station called Radio Valley of the Stones. And there it is, looks like a cricket score box. And he asked me if I would go on his program. And um, so I said, yes, I'd be delighted to. I- I'm not sure what the audience was. I think it was just mainly people who were sitting outside uh, in the square. But he got in there, and then, you know, he would he'd play some music, and then he would say, ah, well, today I have, um, I have with me Michael Palin. Michael Palin... Uh, you have been all over the world. Uh, what do you think of gay marriage? And what? <laughs> uh, you know, certainly wasn't expecting that. Um, first off, so I sort of did my liberal bit, you know, and people love each other, what they do in bed. Good, he said, and abortion? <laughs> wow, a double whammy. Um, so I did my bit about that. He said, oh, thank you very much, and then went on, now Elvis Presley, it's now or never. <laughs> And I asked afterwards, I said, this is, seems very direct. Well, what, what was he doing? Was he winding me up? He said, no, no, that's what they're interested in at the moment. These are two of the main topics that are being discussed in Brazil because legislation is going through in Brasilia and um, they would really want to know your opinion. So the Brazilians aren't the sort of people who say, oh, what a, a nice day to you. Are you enjoying it? Yeah, very interesting shirt you've got on, anything like that. How long have you been here? They get straight to the point and I like that very much. And here is Capoeira, you can see it uh, in, the, in the square in this, per se, pretty rough old um, favela, the girls sparring up there, and then, oh, there he is again, <laughs> showing how it isn't done. Um, another thing is Candomblé, which is uh, a religion which has become very popular. Um, originally, Candomblé uh, was a syncretic religion, it's, it's African animism, kind of integrated with um, Catholicism because the slaves realized they couldn't just be they couldn't celebrate their own religion in predominantly when their masters were predominantly Catholic so what they did was they just uh, used their um, their animist religion used their gods the god of water the god of uh, the god of the trees the god of mountains god of um, uh, of crops, whatever, and gave them names like Barbara and James, and uh, it worked very well. So they sort of um, the Catholics didn't quite notice. They thought they'd been converted to Catholicism, but in fact, Candomblé kept going very much in the African style and tradition. And in um, until 1950, it was banned in Brazil. Uh, but it, there was uh, after 1950, they decided to allow it, and we were able to go to one of the, um, one of the ceremonies here. And they, they, the Candomblé temples are really just basically people's houses, well, the house 
of the man who is the high priest of the area. And here we see outside the house, another part of the favela, the man who is the high priest and his wife, and they uh, organize the, the ceremonies. Leaves are scattered outside to represent the forest they come from, and water is uh, scattered over them to represent the streams and the forests of the lands they come from. He was rather wonderful because he was also um, he, he was um, uh, a fortune teller. He could tell your fortune, and he would give people audiences before. And I I was um, granted an audience. And he, it was, he had cowrie shells, he used cowrie shells, and shook them a lot and then read the shells. And he got an awful lot right, you know, that I had three children and all that sort of thing, two boys and a girl, you know. Um, didn't quite say that I worked for the BBC, but obviously he was kind of had a hunch somewhere. I think he Googled me myself. Um, <laughs> but anyway, he did all this, and at one point I said, look, may I, I may be rude, but can I ask you something? With the World Cup uh, coming up, it's going to be held in your country. Um, in two years' time, may I ask you something? Uh, uh, using your skills with the carousels, could you tell me, will England ever win a World Cup again? And he took this very seriously. A lot of England, World Cup, and he scattered them along, and his eyes widened, and he looked at these carousels for some time. Then he looked up and said, no. <laughs> Couldn't have done that much earlier, but it was a wonderful bit of comic timing. Here inside you see the candomblé ceremony, very much involved with, with the domestic life. There are, they don't have sort of high priests, they don't have a lot of um, particular, particular sort of ornamentation or anything like that. It's done inside the homes, and they dance till they drop. These people representing the various gods and goddesses. Um, they dance around in this room and um, after, yeah, they dance about an hour at a time, it's very, very hot and they collapse and go into trances which is sort of very much part of the religion. Anyway, here I am meeting another, um, another aspect of, um, of uh, Salvador is the cooking and here's one of the great exponents of Salvadorian cooking, Dada. Uh, Dada started working uh, with her mother as a maid in the rich houses of, um, of Salvador and she acquired her taste in, uh, in food from the scraping she'd get off the pans, uh, pots and pans that she was asked to clear and clean. So she would, she, she, that's where she picked up her, her taste for food. And she became, then she sold um, sandwiches on the beach and finally became extremely successful and now runs three uh, restaurants in Salvador. Uh, the likes of you know, Bill Clinton and people, Gilberto Gilles, they all go along uh, to sample her food. She was, she was just great. I, I said to her, you know, Surely, after all this time, cooking must be a bit of you know must be a bit of a bore for you. You've done it all. She said, no, no, no. She said, every meal I, every meal um, you know I I, I make is, is like having an orgasm. And, you know, so I, oh, the only thing I could think of saying was, well, that must be very tiring. <laughs> Pathetic, what we Brits come up with, isn't it? You know, when you're given a nice lead in like that. Um, little glimpse of Salvador there. Now and into Amazonia. I'm conscious of time moving on. Um, 42% of uh, Brazil is, uh, is Amazonia and only a tiny, tiny proportion of the population live there. Um, a vast area, the Amazon uh, basin itself, uh, enormous amounts of water. I think something like 25% of the world's fresh water is all gathered in the Amazon basin. And of course, still, despite 
predations of, of recent years, the rainforest is enormous, and one flies over it for hour after hour. We were very, very lucky um, to be able to get access to um, go to see some of the tribes. First one up there, right on the Venezuelan border, and later we were going to go down nearer to Brasilia, to the Wajo village there. The first tribe we went to see were called the Yanomami, and uh, there are about 20,000 of them. They're right up, as I say, by the border, and you can only get to them by plane. Uh, there are no roads, there are not even any uh, waterways up there. Uh, they were first contacted in, uh, in the 1950s, a very warlike tribe, uh, but now they, um, they uh, have visitors, not that many, but they do allow visitors in. Um, they're fascinated still by what you come up with. I took some photos, they were all having a look at my, my camera, seeing the photos. And um, here I am. <laughs> this is uh, in the big circular hut, uh, house where they live called the Malacca. And uh, they all sleep in, in hammocks. It's kind of hot hammocking. Uh, the man who was sleeping next to me in the hammock uh, uh, in the evening wasn't the man who was sleeping there in the morning. So they all <laughs> go around. It's very, very friendly. All the families, about 70 families around there. They're very worried that we might get bitten by the mosquitoes around there. They don't. They sort of seem to be immune to it. So there I am looking like some, some of this sort of plastic bag, really, isn't it? Sort of something you might buy at Sainsbury's. Um, <coughs> They, um, they uh, presented um, a very welcome, a welcome dance for us all here. You can see them putting on, um, uh, decorating themselves, putting on sort of uh, markings which they get from the leaves uh, and the trees dies in the forest. And um, the men uh, have harpy eagle feathers, harpy eagle, very big eagles which are in that part of the, the forest. They decorate them, and they also have um, hallucinogenic snuff. You can see them getting it out of the bottle there. This is their sort of this is this is their alcohol, really, sort of. Um, and the, the the jars are scattered around the Malacca for anyone who wants to have a sniff at them. I didn't actually, but um, um, but anyway, they 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 uh, take it specially for the dances. You can see the elaborate feathers, like the toucan feathers on his arm, and um, they they then go out, and everyone in the village. A dances in the centre of this great big circular hut. Um, this is uh, a sort of where you walk through from the airstrip to the Malacca. And it's about an hour's walk, and this is what you walk through. So it is like going uh, back in time, about 2,000 years, from the little airstrip with its tiny clinic to the Malacca, where there is no uh, electricity, obviously no um, radio or TV or anything like that. Um, no, no um, sanitation, um, uh, modern sanitation, anything like that. It is just the way of the people, the Adamami, who really haven't changed much. And you go there down this path with these massive trees on either side. And it's really epic. In the morning, if you want to, that, that's the um, uh, place where you, you're, 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 you bathe and wash, stream that goes down through the forest. Uh, and I went there, got there very early, just lay. There. there was no one else about, lay in the water, just looking up in the sky. And I thought, this is, this is wonderful. This is why I travel. They love their children, uh, keep their children very close. All the women hold the children very close to them most of the time. I noticed that, flesh on flesh. And the children are very quiet on the whole. There's no, very little yelling. Um, and uh, a lot of, they're very curious. Uh, I'm reading them a story here. A story, actually, about um, Theodore Roosevelt, the American president. <laughs> Um, who came with his son Kermit 
to uh, this part of Brazil. He was quite an, uh, quite an adventurous explorer, uh, Teddy Roosevelt. And um, so successful were they that there was a little um, a river named after him, the Rio Roosevelt, and even smaller river around there called the Rio Kermit. So I was just telling this story. And they just, they just loved the story. I was kind of playing it up a bit. But these children absolutely love just, just being told a story. Funny uh, things like that happen, I found, in all my travels. You don't need to have language. In some, there's some relationships that just, just sort of work, like having food together, like reading a story to children. Um, they, all love, they all love it in the same way. Um, this is Dabi. He is the leader of, um, of the Yanomami at the moment. He's been all over the world to try and fight for the rights of these people. Uh, his view, basically, is that they have looked after the forest for thousands of years. They know how to look after the forest. They are under threat now from various people, mainly um, gold prospectors. There is gold in the forest there, and the gold prospectors come in, and they're f- pretty ruthless. They use mercury in order to flush out the gold. The mercury gets, is toxic, gets into the water supply, um, and they depend on the rivers here. There's no other water supply, so it can affect them and their health. There are also the loggers coming in, and they bring in roads, they cut down trees, and finally the army that are building, uh, tend to be strengthening defences on the Venezuelan border. Despite the fact that Brazilians, really, one of the great things about Brazil is they, they're not militaristic. They haven't had a war, been involved in a war since about 1876, when there was a war against Paraguay. Um, but uh, anyway, they're, they're like anywhere else in the world, they have an army, the army has to do something, the army protects the borders, um, and this damages the environment for people like the Anamami. And this is the Malacca. This is where we stayed for a couple of nights. Very sad I was to leave it. Uh, and that's a uh, basil shot as we move away. Very, very different house. This is the opera house in Manaus, um, an indication of how incredibly rich some people, certain people, became in Brazil in about 1900 at the height of the rubber boom. Uh, they exported rubber all around the world. Um, so much money was made that they created here in these sort of jungle cities, uh, Paris or Venice, something to rival any European city. And this magnificent opera house is certainly uh, rivals anywhere. But what happened was that the uh, Brazilian rubber industry disappeared very, very quickly. And I'll tell you why. Because in 1876, a man called Henry Wickham, um, working in Brazil, managed to collect some rubber seeds uh, on the instructions of a man called Hooker, who, Joseph Hooker, who was running Kew Gardens at the time. These rubber seeds were taken to Kew, they germinated, they were taken out to the British colonies in Malaya and India, and with no natural predators, the rubber trees thrived there. And in a very short while, um, by about 1910, 1915, um, they had surpassed the Brazilian rubber production. And by 1920, after the First World War, Brazilian rubber industry was virtually dead. And the British were producing uh, 75% of all the world's rubber. So Henry Wickham is one of the few people the Brazilians will say rude things about still. And they'd say very, they're generally very easy going, but Henry Wickham is a villain. Uh, but actually he was put up to it by Kew Gardens to get these things. And there was a great deal of uh, uh, botanical imperialism at the time, but that's another, uh, that's another story. Anyhow, um, uh, it leads me on to a fascinating sort of side story, which was to do really with the Brazilian rubber um, industry. When Henry Ford um, 
decided he was going to make his motor cars in Brazil, this big booming market. He decided he also he could make tires there. The rubber rubber was grown in Brazil, wasn't it? And people say, yes, yes, it was. Yes. Right, I'm going to build an enormous rubber pr- factory production um, in um, in and near the the, um, the 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 jungle where the rubber grows, and he did indeed. Uh, build a town called modestly Fordlandia um, which was meant to be just like Detroit and was going to provide all the tyres for his um, for his automobiles and here I am at a busy ferry port in a place called Santarem uh, about to go downriver to see uh, what's left of this extraordinary place Fordlandia there we are, hammock's very much a hammock land there and I'm, that's the fir- I'm on the first class deck here which means you get coloured hammocks and uh, very jolly, uh, very nice, comfortable way to to um, to drive uh, to go down the rivers. And it's about 14 hours before you get to Fordlandia. And this is what you find: an enormous turbine hall, abandoned um, streets uh, built very much, very similar to the streets in Detroit. You can see there the, the the water hydrant there, and the way that trees have been grown over. Only the Americans would do that to provide shade. The buildings there very much built like small town America. It is very, very weird because, of course, um, his adventure totally failed, uh, partly uh, because of disease um, of the rubber trees, but also couldn't get a, a workforce, wanted to work in the middle of the jungle. And he did build, they did build, they built the most modern clinics, they built hospitals, they built schools all now um, run down and disappeared. But there, there are still, there's still enough of them there for people to have moved in. So it's like this wonderland, this modern technological uh, metropolis, which is now just squatted in by local people. An extraordinary place to be. Anyway, um, now going up towards the mouth of the Amazon and um, all the rivers come together. Uh, an enormous amount of uh, water goes out of the Amazon I think it's something like 57 million uh, gallons of water every second go out. Uh, it's a huge amount. And it's also very fertile around there. The villages around there are very fertile. Here you can see them loading fruit. In the background, you can see again um, an example of the British and French design of the around about 1900. That's a market uh, made of cast iron, including the pinnacles there, made um, by Glaswegians and shipped out in. Uh, in crates to be erected in Belen and uh, everything around there is big the, the food is absolutely extraordinary the fish are huge you can get any kind of potion from this lady here mostly jungle vagras of one kind or another um, I bought a case no I didn't no. Um, and uh, then we move further south and this is the, the view you very often can get from the aeroplane looking down uh, into the into the rainforest. Rivers, because it's very flat, there's a great plateau there, there are no high mountains in Brazil, so the rivers meander, and you see wonderful oxbow lakes all over the place there. And we flew into another village uh, where a much smaller tribe called the Wauja were living. There are only about 800 of, of them, and again, impossible to get to apart from flying in, or rather long, I mean, you can get by boat, it takes many, many days. And with these villages, like with the Anamami, you have to get permission to go there. We were very lucky because our director had made a film there a few years ago. So they welcomed us, and uh, I think you can see the welcome. Great dance of welcome. Again, again, very much, very important. Um, the makeup, um, the, the decorate, body decoration, very, very important. 
and the feathers used as well. There they are greeting me. They live in these enormous houses, uh, huge uh, thatched houses, which just really have one, one doorway. And I'm talking there to an American anthropologist, uh, Emily, who had been out there, actually spoke their language, um, which is pretty remarkable. There's only about 800 other people speak it. And she was able to show me what was going on, um, describe what the dances were, and also... I wandered around in the morning after I got up. There are no chimneys in any of these houses, so when they light the fires, they, they just gently, the, the, the steam, just the smoke just finds its way out through the, um, through the thatch on either side. And you can see there, just the one, one door, no windows. Um, after a very, there was a, a storm in the night, and there you can see um, a man with his children thatching, uh, re-thatching his roof. They last for about ten years these magnificent huts. They look as though they're permanent forever, but they, they, as you see, they can be holed very easily by a storm. They last about ten years and then have to be rebuilt. Um, Emily, the, the anthropologist, said, one thing you, you must do is go and try do some cooking with the, with the women, because men never do any of the cooking. And the women thought it was rather wonderful, so I did some, make some manioc, and I had to grate the manioc and make manioc pancakes and all that. I thought I was a bit ham-fisted, but they were... They were quite impressed, and in fact, they told Emily that I'd make a very good husband. Um, and then added, for the older women. So they, I know my place. An interesting thing before I left was that um, they're very interested, this particular tribe, again, only made contact with about 30, 40 years ago, very interested in their heritage, like we all are too. And some photographs have been discovered by an expedition in 1924 which went round the area. And these photographs were shown on this screen um, one evening out in the main square of the village. And you can see them looking at um, their, the, the, the Wauja warriors and the Wauja chiefs of um, 80 years ago. And the interesting thing was they said, it's good, we, we love the fact that we have access to these um, photos. They are, they are extraordinary and we love to see them but the great problem for us is that when they came around and took our photos they never took down our names. So we never know who that person was and how they're related to us. And you kind of see how that might have happened. People just going saying well we're photographing as tribes you know, not as individuals. If we were doing it in our own country we'd probably make a little note of what the name was and what they were doing and all that but um, they didn't um, and that, the, that was sad because they'd love to know more about their, um, where they came from and their ancestors. What they have learnt, and it's quite extraordinary, is they've learnt how to use cameras, really, because people have come to the village, um, anthropologists have studied them for uh, the last 20 or 30 years, and they now know how to use cameras. And they can see one of the Wajra actually filming uh, us filming the dance. And the great thing is that they have now, they know how to not just shoot film, but how to edit it, how to get it online, because computers, they understand. They understand it's fairly simple. You press this, you press that. So in 30 years, they've completely bypassed um, the Industrial Revolution, the Renaissance, the Middle Ages, <laughs> and gone straight to computer. And I think that's it's kind of impressive uh, for a tribe of about 800, 900 people. The other thing is, and, and this is what I learned really from these tribes, is that they, they know that they're going to be integrated with the rest of the world. They know they're going to have to um, engage with the modern world. Their children want to go, uh, are going to want to travel. What they want is to make sure that they are accepted 
um, on their own terms. They want their history. They want their language to be uh, accepted and preserved. And in fact, um, some of the Wild are actually editing a, a dictionary for the tribe, um, which has never, never been written down before, but now they realise this is something they should do. Um, now, leaping forward to sort of the Dandere world of Brasilia. Brasilia was chosen as the capital of Brazil um, because of uh, the rivalry between Rio and Sao Paulo. They decided, or the president at the time, decided they would build their own capital in the middle of nowhere, as it was, and there was absolutely nothing around. And this capital, designed by Oscar Niemeyer, uh, a, a brilliant architect who, who died only, um, I think, couple of years ago, aged 105. Uh, it was built in five years, quite extraordinary, for absolutely nothing, no roads there, anything like that, and built in this rather beautiful architecture. Uh, this building here is the judiciary um, in Brasilia, and you know how when we build our, when we, our buildings were built, we want to impress people, they, they must have majesty, they must have gravity, they must be rather big and dark and strong. There you have a judiciary which just sums up the kind of Brazilian life, really, something light and airy and, uh, and fresh and bright. And uh, that's, the, that's the parliament as well. Road to Rio, I'm, I'm conscious times are going on, but um, I'm going to have to go rather quickly through the next two parts of, um, of Brazil. Uh, but this is um, in Minas Gerais. Minas Gerais province, Minas Gerais just means general mines. And this is where gold and um, a lot of iron ore, but particularly gold, um, was discovered around about in the late 18th century and made Brazil very rich indeed and particularly made Rio, which is only about um, 200 miles from here, um, very rich as the port from which this mineral wealth was exported. A lot of it came to London, actually, because um, for a long time, Portugal uh, had taken big loans out from the British uh, to fund these mines and all that, and had to throw a lot of the wealth from the mines went straight back into the British Treasury at the time. Um, but still, some very fine buildings here, and uh, this is a mine working. It was um, this machine which pulls the... Um, the, the trolleys and trucks out of the mine was actually built in Glasgow in 1825 and was working up till uh, this was a proper working mine up till about um, 20 years ago and now you, it's, a, it's a tourist you can still go down, the machinery still works, um, these are the gold seams under, under the ground iron ore um, also in the area huge iron ore deposits and this is Brazil's greatest source of wealth at the moment, um, and huge amount exported to China. This is why Brazil's economy grew uh, in, in, 19, in 2011 to be the sixth biggest economy in the world, just ahead of the UK. Um, and this is one of the huge trucks they use to get the iron ore out. Now it seems things are, are turning a bit. The Brazilian economic miracle has certainly slowed down. And man, just, just three or four days ago, some of you might have read about a man called Ike Batista, who was the most richest man in um, Brazil. He owned lots of mines, and he put a huge amount of money into oil exploration off the coast. The two oil wells he drilled um, were not productive, and apparently he's lost something like $29 billion over the last year, which is, you know, quite a lot, really. <laughs> uh, 
uh, usually only IT uh, scams, um, only uh, IT developments that don't work usually sort of uh, cost that much. But anyway, he's, caught, um, he, he's lost a lot of money. These are the, uh, the workings, uh, great big sort of cavities in the ground, huge, just again, you can see a tiny truck at the very bottom there. Where is it? I can't see it, it's so small, right down there. So you can see the size and scale of these enormous gougings into the earth to supply China, and mostly China, or some of Europe as well, with iron ore. Um, here we are, um, the uh, archetypal beach of Brazil, Copacabana Beach, um, in Rio. And the day we got there, or the day after we got there, there was a huge gay pride march, uh, which I was asked to, uh, if I wanted to join in. So, of course, I did. Um, and we were the guests of the transvestites and transsexuals um, department of Rio State. Um, everything's changed very dramatically in Brazil. Um, the man who, who, who was a trans, uh, the transsexual called Marjorie, who looked after me and was our guide, said he was on the first gay pride march 20 years ago, and there were 28 people, and they were abused and shouted at and had sticks and stones thrown at them. This year, 750,000 people turned out on Copacabana Beach from all over Brazil um, to celebrate the Gay Pride March. And uh, there we are, you see there, two British ministers. Um, <laughs> I don't know if it's Nick Clegg, I think that's just a rumour. Um, Obama was there. Terrific feeling of celebration. Here we are on the bus with me and the, and the transsexuals. Me feeling slightly out of place. Um, as Eric Idle once said, uh, I felt like a lost lamb in an abattoir. Um, and I, I'd asked, I said, they said you're going to go on the transsexuals bus. Well, I said, what, what should I wear? They said, well, the theme of the, um, the whole march is peace this year, so wear white. And so all I could find was a t-shirt and some shorts and there I am at the back there, you see this strange figure looking like the man who sells the deck chairs on the buses um, never felt quite such an idiot uh, but there is the, the massive uh, massive number of people out on the streets and it was completely trouble free um, I hardly saw any police around at all um, but I just think the fact that in 20 years, it could have changed, say, from almost just about 30 people to the vast numbers that we saw. Um, it, is, it shows that things are changing very, very rapidly in Brazil. Here's the, um, the great statue of the Redentore um, on Corcovado, and I'm there with the great-granddaughter of the man who designed it, Hector Costa da Silva. And she showed me, told me quite a lot about the designing of this uh, this this great iconic statue and there's her great grandfather with the team and there we can see it being um, in the design being done the scaffolding. Quite interestingly the first design, uh, the arms were not outstretched, they were going to be hands at the side, there was going to be nestling across and, um, and the sheep, the paschal lamb in the other hand. And then someone said well you won't really be able to see it right at the top of the hill and someone came up with the great idea of putting the arms out. Yes, so they, they um, had to spend a lot of money uh, redesigning it to put the arms out. And then the final thing was that the head was uh, held upwards. And someone said, well, it's got Rio below. Maybe just the head should be looking down over the city. 
And, oh, that was a good idea, so they redesigned the head. And this apparently cost huge amounts to try and tilt this head at 45 degrees. Um, but it is, anyone who's seen it, it is a very moving statue. I think it works extremely well because it's not grand. It's not sort of, it uh, doesn't seem to represent any one particular religion. It's a sort of compassionate uh, figure and, and, and beautifully made, very simply uh, uh, conveying its message. Very quickly now, favelas, I haven't really said much about favelas. Uh, these are the slums, really, which are created by people coming to the big cities because there was no work, um, usually up in the north. They were given no facilities, there was no sanitation, there was no protection from the police or anything like that. So pretty soon these big favelas were run by gangs. And um, criminal gangs and it's now a real problem because with um, the World Cup and the Olympics in 2016 coming up they've got to try and integrate these favelas into the city much better they've got to try and break the grip of um, the criminal gangs here they just uh, this is an initiative where they're getting local kids to make their own surfboards and here's the favela the children walking down to the beach and there they are um, surfing the beaches are completely open in Brazil and no such thing as a private beach. So here, these children from the favelas who would not have been able to afford surfboards or, um, or wetsuits or anything like that before are now given them and they can uh, show their skills alongside the rich kids on Ipanema Beach. And this is a girl from the favela uh, turned out to be a real uh, star on the surfboard. So they're doing things like this, trying to bring people together. Um, the a system, uh, the, the policy they're using is called pacification. Pacification is basically wresting control of the favelas where a million um, uh, Cariocans, as they call people from Rio, a million uh, of the population live, wresting control from the gangs. And we were, we were allowed to film at the headquarters of an organization called BOPE, Special Operations Battalion, and they are the real hard men and women um, who go into these favelas and they, they chase out the drug barons and then and the gangs take control of the streets and then a few days later the nice police come in and pat kiss babies and open schools and all that sort of thing. So this is the way they do it. This is, <laughs> this is the emblem of the uh, um, uh, and uh, there's a very nice PR lady. I said, it's a bit gruesome, isn't it? You know, you know, knife sticking in the head. She said, no, 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 no. The knife is not sticking in the head, no. The knife is coming out of the head. <laughs> Couldn't see that distinction myself, but still, she obviously thought it was a symbol of some peace. And but anyway, they are a fierce lot. Here we are. Um, they're getting ready to go out into the favelas. Um, graffiti, hugely popular and encouraged in Brazil. This is in the docks area of Rio, just being redeveloped as um, um, a big art centre. The big warehouses are being used for production companies, media houses, and all that. And this, uh, the film festival is situated out in the old docks area. It's going to be very important in, um, in the years ahead when the, the world turns to Rio for the football and the Olympics. Here's another way of, of dealing with a favela. This is a huge favela in, um, um, in Rio where they built uh, a cable car system. And it, they built it very quickly, in about a couple of years. And what it does mean is that people who had to walk through narrow, dangerous little alleyways or climb up hills to get to the shops, go to the doctors or whatever, can now go on this cable car system and be there in about five or ten minutes. It's an extraordinary sort of gleaming 
um, edifice. Uh, unfortunately, most of the older people won't use it because they're terrified of the thing. They think it's completely unsafe. They still walk to the clinic. Um, Einstein, Einstein in the building here. Um, uh, new libraries providing media um, outlets, providing uh, high-tech facilities for the uh, youth of the favelas. This is happening here. And this one last shot. The favelas themselves are actually, uh, the way they're positioned, they're on top of the hills and some of what you think is the best real estate in Rio, but that's the way they were built. They, are, they, they were built on the, on the hillsides and the rich areas of Copacabana, Ipanema, Leblanc are all down um, by, the, uh, by the coast. And I talked to a Brazilian um, uh, artist who, who described it, uh, living in the coast and living in Ipanema and all that, so it's a bit like living in um, uh, San Tropez surrounded by Mogadishu and uh, <laughs> a nice way of putting it and the last view of the, the ex extraordinary striking sort of granite features of, um, of the, uh, the Brazil of the coastline of Rio quickly now, very quickly because you want to get some questions in uh, the deep south now there we are, south of Rio and, um, uh, and uh, towards Sao Paulo, first of all we met uh, went to interview somebody in a lovely, lovely town called Parachi which is uh, about uh, 100 miles south of Rio, used to be the entrepot port for all the minerals and all that, and we met a man who is actually first in line, he's the direct descendant of the kings and queens of Brazil. Brazil had kings and queens till um, 1888, I think, and uh, there you can see his ancestors in the background, that's, I think that's Napoleon's sister. Anyway, they're all, he, he's, uh, he's actually quite a staunch Republican and writes, uh, writes in the newspapers and all that, they, but he's actually called Prince Jean. Uh, that's where, that's Parachi, very popular tourist area, um, and uh, they can see a view of it from higher up and uh, a little bit of the area called the um, Mata Atlantica, the Atlantic Rainforest, a bit more of that later. Just show, showing here that Brazil um, is also uh, a, a, an engineering country, a high-tech country. This is a Embraer, the aircraft factory. Embraer is the third biggest manufacturer of civil aircraft in the world after Boeing and Airbus. They uh, medium-sized aircraft, 150, uh, I think, is the the biggest they build. They're used a lot by um, local. Uh, European Airlines for uh, short-haul flights. Very, very successful company that nearly went bust about 20 years ago. Um, this is Sao Paulo, just what can one say? It's vast. Some, any population can be from 20 million to 26 million. They have... Um, uh, it's a very vibrant city, but terrific problems. Um, very, very rich people, and there are a lot of them there, uh, never travel on the ground by, by car because traffic jams are enormous. In fact, in, um, about three years ago, Time magazine had a, um, a front cover about the longest traffic jam ever recorded, which was in uh, Rio and, and um, stretched for 226, sorry, in Sao Paulo, and stretched for 226 miles. So, um, as I say, the rich now just get helicopters and they fly from building to building and never need to touch down. Some pictures here, Basil's taken, of some faces from the, um, some of the favelas in, in Sao Paulo. Father, mother, and son. Um, he's called Criollo. Criollo is a very, um, uh, very fashionable figure in Brazil now. He's a working class guy, he's a rapper, he's a musician, a uh, great poet. And he has given a voice to the, the dispossessed of the favelas. 
and uh, has been very, very successful. He still lives in this uh, the old favela with his um, not with his parents all the time, but near to his parents, and here you see him just jamming in the street. Um, that's just a huge refuse tip, really, but it's most beautifully organised. This is where the, all the refuse of a lot of refuse of San Paolo comes, and again, it's, it's very high tech. They can actually extract fuel from this within. Uh, a few years, all the stuff bedding down. It's all got pipes going through it and all that. And uh, they, they capture uh, fuels. Very quickly here, um, uh, evangelical movements are very big in Brazil. This is the princess cult. And it's a lady who's very, very charismatic and talks to, uh, well, women almost entirely. In fact, we were very lucky to get in just to film are really about how awful men are and, and how you know they don't need them and they've got to take the lead and not be pushed around and all that. And amazingly successful. This hall is a thousand people crammed in here. And as we were waiting outside, you could see people arriving and they were just women, you know, from, from the coming out from the underground after a day's work, scurrying along to hear this woman um, sing and tell them. <laughs> That men, what men were really like. Um, she'd had a terrible childhood, I have to say, and been beaten up by several husbands, so um, I can understand it. Um, another Nehemiah building, great, this great architect, this is an art gallery in Curitiba. Um, this is part of it called the Eye. And a train, a train, at last we found a train, but it's only a tourist train, and it goes through the Mata Atlantica, which I was going to tell you about. This huge um, rainforest spread right up uh, along the northeast coast uh, of Brazil. And although everybody um, talks about the Amazon rainforest and the damage and the depredations there, this actually has been reduced to only 3% of its original uh, over the years. So much has been cleared. But this particular area near Curitiba, you, you take the train and it's sort of beautiful scenery like that. Um, as you can see. Um, some, um, uh, Brazil, Brazil is an immigrant nation. Uh, all sorts of people from all over the world have come together. And uh, the, the real amazing thing is that they see themselves as Brazilians. Apart from this particular area, um, where the Germans see themselves as Germans still. And uh, there you are, you can see they're still, they have preserved their way of life. And the Brazilians are very, very um, tolerant and, and they're allowed to learn, the children are allowed to learn German in school as their first language and all that. Um, and here you can see um, more German traditions, beer drinking. This is Ingo Pence who takes beer around to various functions and I'm helping him out. Um, he brews his own beer and takes this great big sort of vat around and so things like this. This is Brazil, would you believe, um, on a grey day and... Uh, there we are again. Very, very quickly now, summing up, the, as I've said, the centre of Brazil is a huge plateau. You fly off the edge of the plateau here. You can see this quite dramatically on our way to a place called the Pantanal, the biggest wetland in the world, bigger than Everglades, um, where there are modern cowboys, slightly more successful than the cowboys uh, of the north. Here's a, a calf. They're rounding up a calf which has been attacked by a jaguar and they're going to um, dress its wounds. Um, I was able to ride with them for a bit, and then at the end of the day, I was taken to catch fish. Uh, piranha fish, actually. So I, I, rather amazingly, you know, you think piranhas, it's the other way around. But I caught a piranha fish. There it is. And uh, we then ate it. Um, and my, my guide said it makes lovely sashimi. So we had piranha sashimi. 
and he, he did it very, very carefully, and he gave me all the guts of the fish and said, just, just throw this in the water. And I threw it in the water, and bang, instantly out came a crocodile. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you see them all over. They're all over the place, the crocodiles, but um, they generally spend all day with their mouth open doing nothing. But my God, when they see something out there, they don't half move. Finally, the Iguazu Falls, one of the most dramatic um, natural features in Brazil, absolutely extraordinary, about 300 spills coming over the, um, of, of water coming over there. You can see people in boats going right up close to the spray, terrific noise, torrent, uh, thundering down. There you can see it on the borders of um, Brazil and Argentina. And this was the end of our journey, just a very quick shot there to show you our crew. That was our cameraman Nigel, been with me for 25 years, Seb, uh, our South African sound man, recording in the Wauger village. And I'd like to finish on two images. One is the Malocca of the Yanomami, the way they've lived uh, traditionally for, I say, thousands of years, unchanged. And this is the new face of Brazil, a stadium being built for 2014. Notice the similarity? Thank you. Uh, Michael, most fascinating talk. No good timekeeping, though. Uh, so we only have like 10 minutes left, but we'll make the most of it. Uh, put up your hands, please, if you want to ask questions. I should say we try and get the event recorded. So if you are chosen to ask a question, please wait until the microphone is uh, with you. So we have uh, the gentleman here. I, I'm going to take in groups of three, Michael, if that's all right. Yeah? Yes, that's fine. Okay, so we have one here. Can I see someone up there? The uh, gentleman there, and can I have uh, the lady here? Okay? One, two, three. Uh, Mr. Palin, thank you for the lecture. It's very interesting, entertaining. Um, my name is Jeremy. I'm in the Human Rights Program here at LSC. And um, I guess this is probably more anecdotal answer for you, but I'm picking up on that last slide. I'm curious about what you saw going on in terms of Olympics preparation, World Cup preparation, and its impact on the local populations, uh, particularly in the favelas? Um, well, the answer is um, we saw stadiums like that being built. That was in Belo Horizonte. Um, uh, we also gathered that there's a certain amount of resentment at the money being spent, um, especially with the World Cup, because they're building stadiums all over Brazil, because they want every city to... Um, you know, every main city to host one of the events. And someone like Manaus, I mean, they only have, they're building, uh, spending a lot of money to build a stadium. And Manaus Football Club, I mean, they only get about, you know, 4,000 people a match. So it's a very, you know, they're not, it's not a big footballing city. And everyone's saying, what's going to be done with this afterwards? Is this not a waste of money? So was, um, I was aware of the two things there. The building going on, it had to go on. Um, the other things I noticed were um, you know, transport is going to be very, very important. Rio hasn't got a great transport infrastructure. They've got quite a small underground system, but they're building that, they're building that out towards the um, Olympic area. Um, I, I, just, I just don't know. I mean, it, it's, I'm following the news, like you probably are, that there's, there, there are more stories coming out now of people getting very um, upset about the amount of money that's being spent 
on the Olympics when there are a lot of very poor people with no access to proper education and all that. How big an issue this is going to become, I don't really know. I suspect the, the sport will, become very, will be very successful. The Brazilians will do well in the football, I'm sure. And the Olympics will be a great party, and they're very good at giving parties. But I think they're going to have to work very hard to persuade people, especially with the economy now declining a little, that this is all money well spent. I think this is an interesting story. Okay, let's take the next two questions together, please. Yeah. Uh, the gentleman up here and then the lady over here. Um, this is perhaps more a comment than a question, but perhaps you could Keep it short, it. please. It, it does seem to me a secondary reason for the collapse of the Brazilian rubber industry was a report by Sir Roger Casement who sadly is better known for being executed as a spy after the First War, about the appalling atrocities that were committed by the British-owned company in the Amazon, um, which was then made public and, the, and, and this caused the collapse of the Amazonian company. I wondered if, you could, if you'd heard about this and whether you could... I, I have heard, but you very eloquently told me but just about as much as I know. About it. No, I, I don't know much more than that, but I know. Could, the I, case could I just? No, no, no. Sorry. Uh, yeah. No, we have, don't have no time. We'll. Sorry about that. We'll go on. Hi, Michael. My name's Erin. I'm. Uh, oh, from, hi. Hi. I'm from New Zealand, and I'm doing my postgraduate studies here in law. But my question actually relates to. Um, well, in, around the world in eighty days, uh, you were following Phileas Fogg's journey, and I was wondering of all the explorers, both real, like. Hillary or Mallory or Scott or Shackleton mm. or fictitious, which one do you admire the most or relate to and why? Well, I, I, I really like Shackleton. The more I hear about Shackleton, because he improvised a lot. He didn't have quite the backing that Scott had. Uh, he didn't quite go out in the, with the sort of imperial flourish. And, and some of the things that he did, um, uh, uh, and he got very close to the South Pole long before Scott, were quite extraordinary, and he was much loved by the men and all that. So I think Shackleton um, gets my vote as a polar explorer. But I love, of course, I think uh, Captain Cook, James Cook's uh, exploration, was truly extraordinary. He was a Yorkshireman like me, from Whitby, and it made these extraordinary journeys around the world, collecting so much information, and took with him a man called Joseph Banks, who was one of the great um, naturalists and provided, you know, sort of... The, the initiatives really to start places like Kew, one of the great collectors. The amount of information that was gathered on those expeditions, I think, made them far more interesting for me than the, the Drake or the Hawkins sort of Elizabethans were very glamorous, but the, this, there was the beginning of modern science in, in a lot of the things that uh, uh, Captain Cook undertook. Okay, we have maybe time for two more questions. Can I Yes, see? I can go until five to eight. Then. Until yeah, five oh, to eight? Yeah, okay, yeah. so let's, uh, let's, let's have three. Yeah. We have the, the lady down here, we have the lady up there, and the gentleman here. Can we have the microphone, please? Hi, Mr. Bailey. My name is Anna. I'm Brazilian, actually, and uh, I'm a huge fan of yours. I can never think I would actually oh. see you. <laughs> um, well, I'm a big fan of Brazil, so... Mutual. <laughs> um, very simple questions. Uh, what was uh, the best food you tried there, and what was the most difficult word in Portuguese you learned? <laughs> oh, God. Well, I, I, I can't tell you the most difficult word I learned. 
because I, I would never have learned it. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I was a bit of an obligado man, you know, I just knew uh, very, very little. As I do when I do my journeys, unfortunately, there's never time to learn languages in all the countries, so I just learned thank you, and I'm sorry I'm English, which is always very good, <laughs> and I've forgotten that already. Um, certainly the best food, uh, I was in, um, was in Salvador, and Dada cooked us some absolutely wonderful, wonderful spicy dish, fish dishes there. It was absolutely, absolutely fantastic. I found that the food in the interior a little bit samey. It's rather sort of a lot of meat, pork, and you go to a restaurant and someone brings a huge, great cleaver and you have to cut the meat off in huge chunks of it. But uh, I preferred, I must say, I preferred the, um, the coastal cuisine in, in Salvador. Lady up there, please. Hi, um, thank you very much for the lecture. I really enjoyed it. Um, I was just wondering, when you travel to places like Brazil um, and you go to villages that are, I suppose, quite simple, the people there live quite simply, does that affect you in any way? Does that make you think you should change the way you live when you come back? Um, Well, it does affect me and has done not just in Brazil but all over the world. it's a, I know it's almost a cliche of travellers, but uh, it's certainly the people with least always welcome you um, most expansively. They're the most hospitable. And I've always felt when I've been to small villages, you'd think there would be some, it would be awkward because, you know, there we are, we're rich with a film crew and all that, and they've got nothing. It's not like that at all. They're completely proud of what they've got in their own world. They're not apologetic in any way. Well, generally speaking um, and I find that quite inspiring and they're very, they are very welcoming and they want to make sure that you realise that they can grow this for you they can give you this sort to drink they can show you their children being educated there's a, a great feeling of pride and I, I feel when I go to those places I'm really making a connection whereas if you go to someone like Beverly Hills where you know, the income uh, per head is <laughs> immeasurably greater, but you can't get near any of the houses without you know, someone shooting you. Uh, <laughs> armed response, it's everywhere. So there's a, I always feel very touched by, by going to places where, you know, the small, especially small rural areas, where people are poorer, um, because uh, not just their own sort of pride in the way they live and what they've made of their lives... Um, um, but also, you know, just simple things like they don't throw things away the way we do. You know, everything is used either to make your house or to, you know, plastic bottles are used over and over again and all that sort of thing. So they use their resources very, very well. And in a lot of these places, they've used those, those resources for many, many years and know exactly how to deal with it. So I understand when the Anamami, when Davi says, you know, we know how to use the forest. Listen to us. We can, you know, we're not saying you shouldn't change anything. But we can give you advice. Um, I think that's inspiring too. Okay, and then there was the gentleman here, yeah. Uh, good evening, Michael. Um, Hello. I, I heard on the Brazil program when I watched it, you said it was the last great country or large expanse of land that you'd never travelled before. But, um, <laughs> having done a couple of backpacking sort of around the world trips myself, I know there are always places which people have never been where have you, you still not to, not going to and is there anything in the pipeline in the future which you're planning well it's all in my head you know I'm, I'm, I, I'm addicted to travelling and I imagine I shall keep travelling until I can still walk where I go and how I go I'm not quite sure you know there are many places I'd love to go to Madagascar <clears throat> I'd love to go to some of the, you know, the South Sea Islands that Cook visited for instance I'd love to go to southern Russia the Stans and all that and Central Asia, the Altai Mountains and all that, where 
you know, the Genghis Khan, everybody sort of uh, um, originated. So lots of places to see. Iran, I have not been to. Um, most of the Middle East has been very difficult for us to get to, so we've not filmed there. And I'd love to go to Iran and love to go to Iraq. I'd love to see where the first cities were, were, were created, um, get a feel for that. So there's a lot more. There's a lot more. So I there's plenty of series in here, then, Mike. Well, uh, <laughs> exactly. I think on this, as far as I'm concerned, there is. You know, it's up to the, ask the BBC. I think on this promise of a note of uh, future books and uh, presentation, BBC um, films, documentaries to come. I think we'll we'll close here. Before I mention the book signing again, uh, I hope uh, some of you will now be enticed to go to Brazil. Let me just give you a, a piece of travel advice. Avoid the plunder that both Michael and I did on our first time to Brazil. You might think this is the international sign for excellent, wonderful. Don't do that ever in Brazil. You'll get a very rude answer. This being publicly recorded, I can't tell you what it means in Brazil. <laughs> uh, very good mind, though. Don't ever, don't ever do that. Now, um, as I said, Michael's uh, book is outside. Uh, you can buy. He will be here um, signing away. Yeah. Um, you are very uh, welcome to take pictures, but we don't have the time to sort of, Michael, to pose with you for that thing that you can then show to your friends or post on Facebook. So uh, please join so me in... Places we can get. Please now. join me in a very warm uh, round of applause.